was a bit worried about my family, so I ducked next door to see how they were doing. And uh, lo and behold, they're all in the dining room, under the dining room table, Tanya, Sophie, Thomas, dog number one, dog number two, all uh, hiding from this storm. Anyway, uh, it's their very own little tabernacle. We'll, we'll come to that in a moment. Uh, let's pray. Father God, uh, we just ask for your help. Uh, help us to listen well tonight despite distractions. And um, uh, we just thank you so much for the rain. We ask for your help that we'd understand this passage, that by your spirit you'd apply it to our hearts and that we love Jesus all the more. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Uh, so the Draycott Tabernacle, the dining room table, well, we have a, a half-decent tent in the garage. And if you go to Youth Master, you'll get to be in it. Uh, it's three rooms, steel-framed. Um, it's supposed to go up in minutes, but... Yeah, but the first time, Tinica? Maybe not so much. I mean, it's easy to remember what the tent looks like. But uh, how easily the Draycots forget how it works and which way you fold it, where the straps go, all that kind of stuff. But it is the Draycott Tabernacle, if you like. It's a tent. Uh, last week we remembered where we were up to in the storyline of the Bible. Israel are out of Egypt and Moses, he's the main man, thumbs up to Moses. Uh, where are they? Do we remember where they are? They're at the foot of Mount... Sinai, and they've made a covenant with God, a promise with God. And did they keep the promise with God? No. That's that story about the golden calf. When we work through Exodus, you might remember that. But such is God's kindness. You might remember the book of Exodus ended with a blueprint for an elaborate tent, a tabernacle, something much bigger and better than the Draycott dining room table. This tabernacle is kind of like a Garden of Eden of sorts. It had all sorts of clues about the Garden of Eden in it. And so I think the idea was it's meant to be a taste of God's place, maybe even a, a taste of heaven, certainly a taste of God's place among his people. It was special. But when we come to Leviticus, it's not so much about what the tent looks like, but more about how it works, in, especially in terms of our relationship with God. And the first seven chapters gave us a clue, didn't they? After we saw sacrifice, after sacrifice, and they're not all sin sacrifices either. Some of them are fellowship sacrifices, or if you wanted to say thank you to God, you had a sacrifice. But the idea is, is this is how you engage in relationship with God. And so we see in these sacrifices that God in his love and his grace provides a way for people to get on with him to relate with him but if you're you've got the tabernacle and you've got the beast and you've got the sacrifice ready to go what else might you need do you need a priest you need a priest and that's what we so it follows chapter 8 uh, we meet the priest, the ordination of Aaron and his sons. And who on earth in chapter 8 is going to priest 
the priests, do you think? Did someone say Moses out loud? I'm sure I said something. Someone said Moses, and that is right. Moses. Give it a go, Benny. Beautiful. I could barely hear you, but we'll take it. Thank you. Who on earth? It's going to be Moses. And Moses, if you see in chapter 8, you can see in verse 15, he's dealing with blood. In verse 30, he's doing the blood thing again. He's doing the sacrifice thing. He's burning fat portions. He even gets the priestly portion of the breast in verse 29. He's the priest. And Aaron and his sons, they are the worshippers. And they're worshipping. They're laying their hands on the beast. Remember last week, verse 14, chapter 8 here, they're doing the thing of cutting its throat. They're in the shoes of the worshipper. And then after they've done that, then they get ordained. Then they get the job, verse 22. And chapter 8, how does it end? Chapter 8, I want you to see this really clearly. There's a seven-day-long feast, which seems to be the high point, that they're working towards this moment where verse 31, Moses says to Aaron and his sons, go and eat in the sanctuary, verse 33, stay there for seven days, and it's like they're eating at God's dinner table, if you like, which is the Israelite dream. Here they are at God's dinner table in his tent, having a meal. And this is, I think, supposed to be a high point. Notice something else in chapter 8 before we move on. Notice also, verse 35, Moses says, Boys, do what the Lord requires so that you will not die. Because that would be bad. You don't want to die. And doing what the Lord requires is actually something threaded through in chapter 8. So let me show you that to you. So as Moses does his priestly work, nine times we're told... Just as the Lord commanded in verse 4, 5, 9, 13, 17, 21, 29, 34, 36. Just as the Lord commanded. If I said that three times, you'd get the hint, I think. You get it nine times in chapter 8. So take that as an important point. All right, take a deep breath. Ready to do chapter 9? All right, let's do chapter 9. It's all the same. Happy, sacrifices, lots of blood, ends with a meal. Okay, but there are some important differences. Because if in chapter 8, the priest was Moses, who's the priest now in chapter 9? It's Aaron. Very good. Gold star. Uh, and the worshippers are going to be, verse 3, the Israelites, everyone else. Uh, and Aaron's there doing the priestly thing. His boys... Nadab and Abihu and others are around. They're there. But this is what's happening. There's also another big difference. And the other big difference is in verse 6 of chapter 9. Can you see it? Moses says, This is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that... Can you see it in verse 6? So that the glory of the Lord might appear to you. Amen. <laughs> that was right on cue, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, so that the glory of the Lord God is going to turn up. 
That is a massive difference. I mean, if you're an Israelite or if you're Aaron and Moses said, you've got to do it this way, you've got to do it right, just as the Lord commanded because the Lord's going to turn up, do you reckon he'd be like, are you sure that's what you want to happen? I'm not you know, I'd be shaking in my boots big time. So Aaron, chapter 9, and, and Israel, they do their sacrifices. And if chapter 8 ended with eating in the sanctuary at God's dinner table... Look at how chapter 9 ends. Look who turns up. Moses, verse 23 of chapter 9. Moses and Aaron went into the tent of the meeting. It's a good tent. When they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Wow. Verse 24. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy, and they fell face down. Can you imagine that? It's just, I I have trouble imagining it, actually. I, I just find it so incredible. I think as the reader, we are supposed to be really excited about what we're reading here. That God in his glory would turn up. That this is a massive, massive high point uh, in Israel's life. Here is God, a man in fellowship. Here is God turning up and he consumes the meal in the sanctuary. He consumes the burnt offering. He consumes the fat portions. He eats it all. And you're like, that is awesome. Uh, that is beautiful. It's kind of like, do you know the joy and relief of seeing something built or installed and it works? Yeah. You see the design, the idea, and then out it comes and happy days. Maybe it was a cake you baked. Maybe you followed the recipe meticulously. You didn't depart from it. Just like grandma's. And you make this cake and you put it on the table and everyone puts the fork in and they eat the cake and... It works. It's beautiful. It's young. Or maybe, you know, if you're more like me, you've bought a flat pack bookcase from Ikea and you've drilled it up and you've got the books in and it hasn't fallen over. Yay! Winning! Or maybe, maybe you're someone that's really good at restoring cars or tractors and you take your time and you work on it for years and years and then there comes that moment when you turn the key and you kick the engine over and you're like, you beauty, we didn't blow up. It's working. It's working. Anakin is Star Wars. Anakin is Star Wars. It's working. Anyway, here they do as the Lord commanded. They did as the Lord commanded. The glory of the Lord appears. And they all see it. And they shout for joy. And they fall face down. Now, I said to Tinica. I don't really know what this looks like, but I want to see a, youth, a video of our youth group kids trying that on. I want to see youth group kids shouting for joy at youth group and then falling flat on their face. Do you reckon you could pull that off? Oh, would it, I don't know what it would look like, but I'm, I'm really curious. A few bloody noses. Well, we'll call a paramedic and uh, he'll come and look after us. Uh, no lights. No lights. Now, as you absorb that picture of God turning up, I want to ask you tonight, what does the presence of God do for you? 
God has appeared. God has appeared to his people. So what does the presence of God do? What do we do with that? I mean, we know if we jump to the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit comes that day of Pentecost and appears as tongues of fire. Well, that's pretty cool. Above people's head, which indicates the activity and the presence of God. Absolutely. And this side of the cross, we know as brothers and sisters that the Holy Spirit has come to us. That the Holy Spirit has come and he dwells in our hearts on account of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. It's every chapter in Ephesians, I found out tonight. Every chapter, there's a line about it. And this is God in Leviticus. This is the God in Leviticus. And this is what he has done for us in Christ Jesus. He's turned up and he dwells in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit we know, the Scriptures tell us, the Spirit is a deposit and it's a guarantee of what? It's a guarantee of something. It's a guarantee of something to come. It's a guarantee of our inheritance. It's a guarantee of God's forever dinner table, if you like. Which is kind of cool, isn't it? And I don't know about you, but is that knowledge life-changing for you? Tonight, does that encourage you enormously? Does this move you to love God even more than when you first came in the door? You probably weren't thinking about it because of the hail. But still, you get the meaning. Does this fill your heart with gratitude? Or are you unmoved by that? Because I'm going to say to you, being indifferent or ambivalent or whatever, who cares, that's not the right response. Now, take another deep breath. These chapters are all happy days, chapter 8 and chapter 9. And everything in the narrative to this point leads us to believe that God's priests obey the law promptly, that they're doing it exactly without deviation. They're getting it right, yeah? It's all following a same pattern. God says and they do. God says and they do. They trust God. And then we get to chapter 10. I hope you took a deep breath because here it comes. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Bill and all his mates, took their senses, put fire in them and added incense and they offered an authorised fire before the Lord contrary to his command. And so fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Okay, see what's happening here. One minute, people, God turns up. God's fire brings shouts and rejoicing in chapter 9. Here, it brings silence. See at the bottom of verse 3, Aaron, he's silent. This is a massive anticlimax. The holiness of God that brought rejoicing and celebration and thanksgiving... The holiness of God 
that did produce a pattern of living in God's people that was good. They did everything the Lord said. But this holiness of God has also brought silence. It's brought judgment. What is supposed to be feasting and celebrating is now stained with sin and death and silence. See, it's just like, just as the owners of the new car kick the engine over and people rejoice, new car, we're away, everything is good. Here, Nadab and Abihu enter the picture and offer an authorised fire. A strange fire, whatever that is. Uh, well, let me explain. The coals have to come from the altar and maybe the coals they use to light up the incense have to come from the altar and maybe they've lit up from somewhere else. Offering strange fire is the same as offering strange incense, which is expressly forbidden in Exodus 30 verse 9. It's, they would have known this. And offering incense, so I'm coming to say to say, offering incense was also a special one priest at a time job. So then you go, well, what on earth are these two clowns doing if it's one priest at a time and Aaron is on the job? Some commentators believe that Nadab and Abihu got way too excited, that they got overzealous, they got ahead of themselves. They did the whole pick me, pick me thing and just jumped in. They were ambitious, acted rashly and impetuously. Other commentators think they were half cut, which explains the laws God talks to Aaron about no drink or wine in verses 8 and 9. So that's not, not, um, not unlikely. The text does say, though, they, just, they offered an unauthorised fire. And they expose dangers here for us. As they expose themselves to the ultimate danger, they show us some dangers. One danger is the danger of position. Their job as priests was to be part of is, uh, the solution to sin, not to be part of the problem. Their job was to represent people before God as mediators and as examples of holy living. Their job was to foster in people reverence and awe for the ho this holy God. They were responsible for the sanctity and the holiness of the people. And Leviticus is going to go on and show that, how this pursuit of holiness is going to extend to every facet of life. They're going to think about what's clean and unclean and what's profane and what's polluted, what's cleansed and sanctified and they're going to be encouraged to embrace that holiness that's theirs and to live in light of it in every facet of their life, including what they eat, including the condition of their interior walls, every facet. And the priests were central to this task of, of helping the people move away from the stuff of death and forward to the stuff of eternal life and holiness. And so the fire was impure, it's unholy, unauthorised, offensive, terrible consequences followed. I mean, they tossed the operating manual out, and it was costly. And the wages of sin is death, 
and they collected their wages on the very day they did their work. And so this serves as a warning to those who lead God's people. If we're pastors or preachers or Bible study leaders or youth group leaders or parish councillors, godly leadership is core value number five of this church family. James chapter 3 verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So that's one danger, the danger of position. The other danger is the danger of presuming upon God. It seems like they just presume that God was now safe. That God had been tamed and that God was now under their control, that he was nice and predictable. They seem to be presuming on God and his kindness. Or maybe they're presuming upon their status as priests. Clearly they think God is indifferent about disobedience. They presume that they can now decide what is serious and what is not serious. And they do a bit of an Adam and Eve, maybe, where they think they just know better. And God's actions, of course, turn all of that thinking upside down. Uh, Now, you might come back to me and say, does this mean I live in fear of being struck by a bolt of lightning? I prepared this on Friday, all right, and this lightning wasn't an issue this morning. And the answer, of course, is no. But take the lesson of being presumptuous with God because flippancy doesn't fit. Which brings us to the third danger and it's the danger of disobedience. The danger of disobedience is forgetting that we don't set the terms. God sets the terms and faith is trusting that God knows what is good for us and best for us. God said, I will show myself as holy, and so he did. He did. He did. And so we thank God that we have a different high priest. We uh, worship the Son of God who mediates for us. Hebrews 4 tells us our high priest, our our King Jesus, is not unable to sympathise with our weakness. He knows what this is like. He was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. And so it means that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence where we receive mercy and kindness from God. And it's all on account of Jesus that we need not be afraid to approach God. That being at God's dinner table in his sanctuary, that's the great Israelite dream that we heard in Psalm 23. Uh, it's the point of rejoicing for Israel that day that God by his grace turned up and showed his glory. But because God also cares deeply about us trusting him or not trusting him, because God cares deeply about sin, then part of his justice and holiness is to meet out judgment. If God did not meet out judgment, he would not be a good God. If God did not care about sin, he would not be a good God. But he does. And we need to reckon with that 
which is why the good news of Jesus is so good. Our high priest pays the wages of sin. He dies our death. In his love, he goes to the cross and he does it so that we can have a place at the heavenly dinner table where our cup overflows and never runs out. A place where there's no more mourning or crying or weeping. And so we, like Israel, are on our way to the promised land. We are headed to the heavenly tabernacle. And Jesus is our risen and high priest who will welcome us. And God is saying then, and he's saying it today, that which is our future, where to embrace it. That which is his pure radiance and perfection and glory, his holiness in Jesus, we are to embrace that today. A place of forever holiness is where we are headed. And so we are to be that which we already are, holy. First Peter chapter 1, I'll finish with this, verse 13. It's written, With minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Amen.